Here we go. This is uh, part two now. There we go. Making sure I'm live. This is part two of the Women in Ministry series. Um, I'm Mike Winger, and I'm walking you through what has been a month-long research project that I've been doing on the topic of women in ministry. And I'm sharing all my thoughts, all my whatever insights I might have. But the value of this project is to dig deep into the other side. You know, I went into egalitarian views. I'll explain what that is in a minute. Those who disagree with my my previous position, I went into their views in detail, and I'll be responding to their views a lot throughout this series so that we could hopefully think biblically about everything. In the first video, I talked about how we bypass the Bible on this issue, how we can bypass it, so that I could clear the way for a careful analysis of the Bible, and that begins right now. We're looking at Genesis chapter 1 through 3 today, and we're going to be looking at the fall and the creation, those two different things, and asking what they say about the role of men and women. So for those who don't know, here's just a little brief reminder. The two sort of sides, there's more than two sides, but the two sides I'm focusing on in this debate are the complementarian and egalitarian side. The complementarian thinks that men and women, they're, they are complementary. They are both equal in value, equal in dignity, but different in role. And that would pertain to, like, say, women in leadership in the church, in some, some complementarians or some patriarchalists, you might say, believe that this affects women in leadership outside the church and in the home, in the marriage roles. Now, the egalitarian side is going to say there's no role differences. There's total equality of roles and potentials for roles so that there's no role differences related to authority in church leadership. And many egalitarians, not all, would say this relates to the home as well. There's no role differences in the home. So anyway, you guys are mostly somewhat familiar with this debate if you're watching this series, and I'm not really introducing things to you. What I'm doing is taking you deep. We're going to go deep today. It's going to be a long video. Um, so <clears throat> I won't apologize. You always tell me, don't apologize when your video is long. I'm just saying it's going to be long. Buckle up. We're going to go into tons of stuff. You're going to be hearing a lot of arguments from Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, especially 2, especially 2. <laughs> We're going to dig deep on these issues. And uh, maybe Moxie, my cat, will join us. I'll, I'll let you know if she does. She hasn't been feeling like it for whatever reason. Cats are cats. So this is a central issue. A uh, brief overview. Here's what egalitarians and complementarians agree on. Both sides agree on this, is that Genesis 1 through 3, that this is central. So let me give you a quote from Mary Conway. This is in the book, uh, Discovering Biblical Equality. She says, she's an egalitarian author. She says, the creation accounts in Genesis 1 through 3 constitute the theological foundation for the relationship between men and women. And I totally agree. Okay, both sides seem to agree. Egalitarians, they all agree Genesis 1 through 3 is foundational. And so we should start our biblical survey with Genesis, not with 1 Timothy 2. With Gen you hear me, complementarians out there? I've seen I've seen you in the comments. First Timothy 2, that's all we need to know about this issue. And it's like, only if you only care about one piece of the issue, and only if you're not going to even bother thinking about what the rest of Scripture says about it. So, yes, we need to start with Genesis. Um, here's the general complementarian approach, and I'll explain the general egalitarian approach. Then we'll go into tons of detail. So the general complementarian approach is that Genesis 2 and 3 these are the accounts, okay, the creation of man and woman is in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve. Then we have Genesis 3, the fall, the fall, which includes the curse upon Eve, right? You know, uh, that I have in the thumbnail of this video, uh, you know, he will rule over you. So in Genesis 2, the complementarians say this shows that a husband has a leadership role and Genesis 3 also confirms this. This is like at least a, a lot of complementarians take this approach. The egalitarian side will say, no, 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 no. And this is super important. They go, it's not in Genesis 2. Genesis 2 has nothing about Adam's authority in relation in his relationship with Eve. There's no authority there. It doesn't show up till Genesis 3. It is only in Genesis 3 after the fall as part of the curse 
that the authority of man is, is talked about by God. And so we shouldn't propagate it. Now, some egalitarians will say that it's not even in Genesis 3. We'll talk about that as well, but, but I think the majority will say it is there and it's a bad thing we should avoid. So we're going to handle the massive debate in three sections. Section 1, Genesis 1, right? The foundational passage where there's not that much disagreement. There shouldn't be, but it bears down and I'm going to sound kind of egalitarian when I talk about Genesis 1. I'm not. I'm not egalitarian at all because I think fundamentally I disagree with the core of that view, but it will sound that way. Um, this is where Adam is used for male and female, right? The, the word Adam in Hebrew, it's used for male and female with no distinction in role or authority between the two in Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, that's the second section, the longest section of this video. It's going to be dealing with the most relevant passage, I think, about male-female relationships. Adam is made first. Eve is made from Adam. Adam names her. She's called his Ezer, his helper. Every one of those points is hotly debated. Um, and here, significant differences between male and female show up, but massive debate exists on every single possible issue. Then the third section of this video is going to be Genesis 3, the fall. This is the most quoted passage on the topic of women in ministry next to maybe 1 Timothy 2, right? I don't allow women to have to teach or have authority over a man. We'll get there later in the series. And um, why is Adam in this passage, why is he seemingly given greater responsibility than Eve for the fall? Here's a question we have to ask. Why does it say that Adam's going to rule over Eve in the curse? Is that what it sounds like? Is it permanent? Is it a result of the fall to be fought against? Right? Like thorns and thistles? Or is it something we should be upholding? All that stuff we're going to get into today. So here we go. Let's start right now. Um, Genesis chapter 1. This is a Bible study, guys. From here on out, this whole this whole series is primarily a Bible study. You're going to learn a lot of scripture if you don't know these things already. Here is the creation passage, Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Now, that, that's the word Adam, <clears throat> the Hebrew word Adam. Uh, but it's being used to refer to man and woman here. So let's let's read this. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock over and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's a lot of dominion, by the way. So God created man, ha-adam, now ha-adam in the Hebrew, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let's keep reading. I just want you to notice the, the, the plurals, the singulars, the male, the females here in the English, and we'll talk about it. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's an awful lot of dominion that they have been given in this passage. So Adam or Ha-Adam, between those two things, it's used in this passage um, multiple times in Genesis 1 verses 26 through 28 in the Hebrew. This is where the word means something like mankind. In Genesis 1, Adam or Ha-Adam is never used to refer to just the man. It's referred to, it's used to refer to the man and the woman. We can see this very clearly because then it's plural. He's making man in his image, so he made him male, female. Even the word him in verse 27 seems to be referring to both, right? Because it's, it's a word to refer to mankind. And is this typical in Hebrew? It's typical in Greek. And it's typical in English, even as much as like 30, 40 years ago, where we would say he used the masculine to refer to a group of male and female. Now, a lot of people find this offensive now. You can be offended all you want. I don't really, that's not, my, not the point. My point is, I want you to understand the passage. And the passage is not saying 
uh, male here, it means mankind. That's what it's referring to in this passage. So male and female then, this is huge. Male and female are both in God's image. This is the highest statement about humanity and human value that is possible. And it's about it's said about men and women. We are in God's image. We're not just more intelligent beings. We're not just more valuable than normal animals. We're in God's very image. This is why God in Exodus is like, hey, when you kill a man, that's that's a major crime. You'll be you'll get the death penalty for it because man was made in God's image. The value of humankind, every human has this image of God quality. So from an infant or a preborn in the, in the womb to an elderly person who's on life support, every human being in the image of God. This the Christian worldview has such a high view of mankind that um we, we need to bring it into this debate on men and women as the foundational aspect, right? This is this is where the complementarian is going to say, guys, this is what we mean by high dignity and value equal in being made in the image of God, difference in roles. Um, often comp complementarians say this and egalitarians will respond by saying, eh, you say that, but you don't mean it. Now, some complementarians may not mean it. I certainly mean it. <laughs> so I think we need to recognize this. There's no lesser humanity for women. The... Um, um, then, okay, so not only in the image of God, that's one point, but also in this passage, dominion. I pointed out dominion, you know, let them have dominion. This is them, male and female, having dominion over the fish. That means women have authority and dominion. This is the first time authority and dominion is spoken of in the Bible relating to humans, and it's about women having, and men, and men, both sides, having great authority over creation. That's a lot of authority, and there's no differentiation here. It's just them. They have authority, Right? They're told together, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and what? Subdue it, subdue it and have what? Dominion. So I'm going to say this, that um, men and women have dominion over the earth. And this is this is foundational to our aspect of understanding men and women. Now, I told you I'm going to sound egalitarian here, but let me quote an egalitarian, Dr. Mary Conway, who says the same thing. And I agree with almost everything she says in this quote. Let me read it to you. Therefore... The specification does not indicate any social or functional superiority or inferiority of either male or female. Since both have dominion over creation before the fall, this is detailed in Genesis 1.28. And I'm going to put Genesis up as I read the rest of her quote so you guys can see this. I'll try to highlight some things. In Genesis 1.28, immediately after the identification of them as male and female, um, male and female, he created them. That's in verse 27. Okay, back to her quote. Um, immediately after the identification of them as male and female, God blessed them, plural, this is a plural word, right? And um, and said to them, be fruitful, be fruitful. That word is plural, be fruitful. I should have practiced how to read and bounce back and forth here. He says, be fruitful and multiply, right? That's also a plural word and fill the earth, that's a plural, the command to fill the earth, and subdue it, and this word subdue, also plural. And have dominion, that word, it's also in the in the Hebrew, it's plural. So it's to men and women, they're both to do all these things. So this is interesting. Okay, I, I read her quote again. Uh, the pronouns and the imperative verbs are all plural, and therefore include both the man and the woman, and are given the same, who are given the same functions. There's no indication that any of these activities is restricted to either the man or the woman, including to have dominion, which derives from the Hebrew root, rada, have dominion over or rule over 
be in charge of. That's the meaning of the word dominion. They're going to rule and be in charge of the earth. It is clear that there is nothing in the first creation narrative, Genesis 1, to indicate that the subordination of women, whether in regard to their nature or function, was part of Yahweh's original intention for humanity. Now, I agree with that almost almost entirely. There's like a little nitpicky thing in there. It's not important. It's not relevant to what we're talking about. This is, this is like so... Um, hi, that's you guys. Sometimes I do that. I guess I'm making you go back and pause the video. What was that? Um, okay, so th this is true. There's nothing in Genesis 1 to separate men and women in their role of authority. Um, so here's application I'm going to get from this that will, will probably bother some complementarians. And But I think um, if it bothers you, it, it feels to me that you might be pushing against the initial creation of men and women here. So here's my point, my application of this. Any limiting of women's authority to subdue creation like any sort of broad stroke, just women in general are not supposed to be subduing or having dominion on the earth, that that seems like a problem to me. That seems wrong to me. So limiting a woman to say housework seems wrong. So I'm already, I, I'm going to make everybody mad at some point in this series. If you, if you say a woman uh, has to only work in the home, what we're doing is we're, we're limiting her sphere of influence over the earth, which she was also told to have dominion over. We're limiting it to one little location, housework or in the home. And I think that um, there's examples of subduing creation, like a woman being an inventor or a farmer or an engineer or a software developer or a physicist, an entrepreneur or some other occupation. This is part of us having dominion and fill, filling the earth and sort of taking charge. Let me anticipate an objection though. And we're going to jump right to the New Testament just because um, I think this is already in some people's minds. So we'll go right there and we'll talk about it. Um, Titus 2.5 says that women are to be uh, self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. We'll talk about more of this passage. I just want to look at the later on, but we'll talk about just working at home here, working at home, because I'm not going to get into this in a lot of detail later. Um, now, this word, there's actually in the Greek, there's there's some debate on which word this is supposed to be, but it doesn't seem like it's an active debate. It seems like it's a dead debate. And the word seems to be um, not working at home in the Greek, as opposed to a word that would mean she has to stay at home. She, I mean, she's supposed to work at home, but not stay at home. Now, it, it pertains then to carrying out household responsibilities. That, that's what uh, BDAG, the lexicon says, carrying out household responsibilities. What we're saying here is she takes care of home responsibilities. Should we take that to mean, though, that she has to work at home as opposed to having a job? And here I'm going to offer several challenges to that view. Because we read working at home and we translate it into our modern English. Oh, you're a stay-at-home mom. Right? But that's, that's not what it means. That's not what it meant then. And here's some reasons why. Um, so Proverbs 31 talks about a... I'm just going to run through several real quick. We'll, we'll do these more in more detail in the future here. But Proverbs 31 talks about a woman who is like kind of this idealized woman, and she's clearly an entrepreneur. Now, she does work at home, like she her children are blessed, right? She takes care of her family, but she also is an entrepreneur. She like buys a field, she sells it she, from the money she gets, she starts something else. So she's like an actual entrepreneur, and she's lifted up as an example because of it. Lydia in the New Testament, she was a, a well-respected woman who worked for a living and used her money to help support ministry. Priscilla and Aquila both made tents for a living. If you read in Acts... It says that both of them were tent makers and they worked to make tents and Paul worked with them to help su support himself in ministry. So what I'm suggesting here is working at home means taking care of home responsibilities. It doesn't mean you can't have some other thing going on in your life. 
So we all, have, we all have responsibilities at home. And those responsibilities grow when we have more kids. All of us, guys too, right? The more kids you got, the more stuff you got to do at home. The less if you're single, you have you have none. If you're married, you have some. If you're married with kids, you got a lot. You know, So it's your responsibilities change and you got to take care of those. Also in Luke 8, in Luke chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, um, we read this. Some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, whom, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. These, these women were sponsoring, meaning they had, they had significant amount of money to be able to do this. They were sponsoring the disciples and Jesus so that they could go around traveling and doing ministry. They obviously weren't just working at home. That, that's what I'm suggesting, right? Um, and I think that one of the reasons why we think this, we think that women are restricted to working at home. Now, again, don't get this wrong. Women have a job to do at home they're supposed to do, just as men have jobs they're supposed to do at home too. I'm just saying one doesn't rule out the other. And, and I'm just going to say it and some will, you won't, you won't hear me. You won't hear me say it. <laughs> but, but anyway. Um, but one of the problems here is that work often happened at home. Throughout human history, work wasn't just something you got in a car and commuted to. It was something you did at your house. Like you're making tents, you do it in like your backyard. Like you you do it there. You're farming. You, your home is part of the farm, you know. So there's activity and labor and work for the whole family. It's not just like dad leaves and goes to work and he comes back and provides and the family's not doing anything. Like a 10-year-old a, a kid is part of contributing to the, to the financial well-being of the family usually in most cultures except modern. And so we have to not read that into the text. We blur the lines um, when we do that. So the needs of your, you know, for women, the needs of your family and children might limit you on how much you can pursue things outside of the home. But that, that, that's legit. But that doesn't mean you aren't supposed to subdue the earth. Like that's a good thing. So now some egalitarians uh, might want to say that this means there's no role differences. This is kind of what Mary Conley was leading towards. Although I agree with her statement, the implications she's giving are, hey, um, this means there's no role differences related to authority because of shared dominion. Men and women have dominion over the earth. Therefore, men and women have no role differences with each other. But what I'm going to say now as we move to Genesis 2 is that the relationship of humans to creation is the focus of Genesis 1. The relationship of man and woman, especially husband and wife, that's the focus of Genesis 2. And so we're going to dig into Genesis 2 and then 3, where the relationship between male and female is dealt with. So my rule so far is I don't want to limit a woman's ability to subdue the earth through overly strict um, patriarchalism, right? But I also don't want to pretend that Genesis 1 is even trying to comment on the interrelationships of man and woman. Let's read through Genesis 2, verses 7 through 25. And uh, I'm going to throw out here some of the things I want you to be considering, be thinking about as we're walking through these issues, right? So um, Adam is made first, okay? Think about that. Notice that. Notice that Eve is not present when the animals are named. Notice that Adam gives Eve her name. Uh, Eve is called a helper, a, 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 you know, the helper fit for him in some translations, Ezer Konegda, we'll talk about that, Ezer in the Greek or in the Hebrew, excuse me. And Eve is created from Adam while Adam himself is made from the ground. So what we're saying here is notice the differences between Adam and Eve in this passage. Here we go. Genesis chapter two, verses seven through 25. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils and the breath of life, the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. 
And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he formed, uh, there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is, <clears throat> it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to keep or to work and to keep it. Okay, so, so far, this is all just Adam. Just acknowledge that. Notice what's happening. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Massive debate point there. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. <clears throat> of course, the next thing we'll get is the fall. Um, now, um, let's, let's talk about Philip Payne here. Uh, Dr. Philip Payne, he is a egalitarian uh, a scholar who's egalitarian who really champions the egalitarian perspective on things and <clears throat> he says the following in his book um, and he's going to give an argument by the way for an egalitarian view of the creation of Eve how Adam and Eve are made differently they are made differently very differently and obviously God has reasons for that here's the egalitarian interpretation offered by Philippine and I quote from his book page um, 45 and 46 he says, the man's joyful exclamation, finally bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh in Genesis 2.23, emphasizes the man's recognition that man and woman share the same essence. Throughout scripture, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh identifies shared standing or kinship, never, never subordination. So let's take this first point. This is a, a, a subtle thing is, is happening here. Uh, Philip Payne seems to be saying, as I understand, I think I'm understanding him rightly. It, he seems to be saying that when Adam calls Eve bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, this kind of rules out the complementarian view because that always means shared standing, shared standing or kinship. Um, <clears throat> he says, quote, it never identifies subordination. Now, this is a little fuzzy because... Does, does Dr. Payne mean that it is never used of someone who's subordinate to another? Or does he mean the term itself doesn't mean subordination? Which to me seems like a pointless point if that's what he's saying. When I say you're bone of my bones, that doesn't mean you're lesser 
in authority than me. Okay, I, I would I would personally agree with that, right? But I've never heard any complementarian argue that it means that. So the only way his point can have meaning in the debate is if he's actually saying the phrase bone of my bones means no lesser authority. And it, again, his book, it, it's, and sometimes this happens as you read books, you're like, what are they saying? Like they're implying things, but they don't just say it exactly. So it is, however, a persuasive point. So I surveyed uh, where the Bible refers to someone as bone of my bones or of my flesh or my bones. And every instance, every occurrence in the Bible, I read through these and thought through them. And it does emphasize a familial connection, unlike animals. That, that's a good connection, Genesis 1. Hey, she's like me. She's not like those animals over there. She's like me. So I, I would agree there. Same standing as far as essence, as far as e this is, but this is a complementarian view, right? Equal in being made in the image of God, different in roles. So your essence, your nature, your e equality that's there. But it doesn't say anything about authority being present or absent ever. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And pain is a, an egalitarian that will be referenced by many, many others. Many of you listening now, you've read or watched a Philip Payne video or teaching and you thought, yeah, I'm egalitarian now. So I want to deal with these issues. Um, <clears throat> there are two ways that egalitarians can support their view of Genesis 2. One is they can try to offer a negative case that refutes complementarian points. We'll talk about that as we go on. That would just take complementarians stuff off the table and Genesis 2 would be neutral. Or they can offer a positive case that, that Genesis 2 is saying things that rule out authority differences between men and women. That seems to be Payne's point. And so we'll ask that question. Does Adam calling Eve bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, does that rule out authority differences because of the way the term is used, the way that I think Payne is trying to imply? Certainly the way many people who read his book would read his book, um, they would conclude it. Um, okay, so 2 Samuel 5.1, it says, then all the tribes of Israel came to David. So we have Israel and David, tribes of Israel, David, at Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. Now, they're then going to ask him to be king over them. And you can see it on your screen. They're asking him to be king over them. So they say, we're your bone and flesh and come be king over us. What I'm suggesting here is, here's an example where bone and flesh, someone being your bone and flesh, doesn't rule out you having some authority over them. Here, David has authority over those and they want him to have authority who are his bone and flesh. But all they're really saying is, we're your family. We're related to you. We're of the same tribe, bone, bone and flesh. So come rule over us. Um, now it's flipped, completely flipped in Judges 9-2, lest some complementarian, you know, listening to me think this means that, um, the, uh, that the term bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh is actually Adam asserting authority over her. It's not right. Because look at Judges 9-2 say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, <clears throat> which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Jerubal rule over you or that one rule over you. Remember that I also, that I am your bone and your flesh. So in these two examples, this is um, <clears throat> this is Jephthah. He's he's going to be ruling, or uh, Jerubal. Uh, he says to Shechem that he's their bone and flesh, and he's going to rule them. So it goes both ways. In the first passage, 2 Samuel 5.1, in case I'm losing you guys here, um, the one who is the bone and flesh is going to be ruled over by the other. That's David ruling his, his bone and flesh and bones the tribes of Israel. But in Judges 9, 2, it's reversed. He's going to rule over them, right? And he's the bone and flesh. So it goes both ways. My point here, this has nothing to do with the issue. We should not be spending any time on this point from Philip Payne on Adam calling her his flesh and bone. It just means that they're of the same, they have a familial connection. They're of this, in this case, 
they're both humans in the image of God. All right, Payne's second point, Philip Payne's second point is the man, not the woman, is said to leave the father and mother and be joined to his wife. Now, this is interesting. I've never heard this before, but this is kind of an interesting argument. It's on page 47 of his book, Man and Woman, One in Christ. He says, if the, and um, I'll summarize this, if the woman left her father and mother, complementarians would take it to imply male authority. And I think he's, he's probably right. Like if, if the text had read, you know, the woman shall leave her father and mother be joined to her husband, people would probably, complementarians would probably take it that way. So he says, therefore, the fact that the woman's leaving or the husband's leaving the father and mother and be joined to his wife, it implies equality. It, it fights against those things. He also has a second point. And the second point is that the husband is leaving father and mother, which implies that he's under father and mother's authority when he leaves, not just fathers, right? Not just patriarchalism, but there's like a motherly authority. And I would, I would, in a sense, I just want to say like, yeah, mothers have authority as well. So let's say if he's right, um, I think he's making too much of this because, um, we could also hypothesize right back at the Galatarians and say, hey, Philip Payne, if it had said, if the text said that a woman was going to leave her mother and father and be joined to her husband, you would argue against that too. <laughs> you would argue, you would, you know, just saying that people are dug in their trenches doesn't prove anything. Okay. It just, it just seems like a distraction to me. The real issue here is that the marriage relationship is more of a priority than the one to your parents. And some people forget this in marriage. Like when you get married, you are not under your parents anymore. You are committed to a new relationship that takes priority over your parents in your life. And I think that is the thing. God is making the hus husband and wife the family, the center of human culture and family, the family unit is husband and wife, not um, father and mother sort of ruling over multiple generations of their descendants all at the same time. Um, not that they don't have some authority or something like that, but rather the central thing, husband and wife. The husband... Um, yeah. So, okay. Some people forget that. Um, and I think it's good to remember if, if you're, if in your marriage, as you're listening to this side issue, you find that your commitments to your parents are hurting your commitment to your spouse. You need to pick your spouse. That's how it works. That's how it works. And, um, I've seen in counseling where a lot of times this is forgotten. So, um, yeah, I'll just move on to the next thing. Number three, Payne's third point uh, from this passage, trying to present his case for the egalitarian view, is that the fact that a man leaves his father and mother shows that the, oh, and I mentioned this earlier, but I'll talk about it in more detail, that the father and mother share equal authority in his life before he leaves them. This is seen as egalitarian. Um, now, I'm just going to push back slightly on this and say, I think we're just making too much of this. The father and mother do have authority in his life. Um, is it equal? I mean, I don't know. I mean, the father's name is mentioned first. I just don't think we're supposed to try to figure out like percentages of authority from that phrase, father and mother. Um, but I've never heard a complementarian who thinks a mother doesn't have authority in relation to her own children. Like I've just never heard it. And so it just seems like this is a waste of time. Okay. I'm moving on and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll now I'm going to give pain, pain a pat on the back because he does point out a bad argument. Um, Here's the bad argument that God naming the human race man in Genesis 5, 2 implies male leadership. Some people do say this. Apparently, I mean, I haven't, I haven't heard it from people I've been studying, but some people say it, uh, male and female, he created them. He blessed them and named them man. 
when they were created. Now, some people will say, well, look at that. He named us man. So man has the, no, man is just in Hebrew. It's just an inclusive term that can refer to men and women or men. It depends on the context. So you could read in, in English, since we're losing this in English, you could read this as mankind or human, right? Human, right? Like this is just an inclusive term. It's not meant to be masculine in its connotations. Um, <clears throat> so good point there. Woman is a kind of man, as far as I can tell in scripture, right? A part of mankind. And um, yeah, not a kind of male, but a kind of human. Genesis 1 establishes this. So the term refers to both of them. The Bible's using existing language. It's not creating new language here in Genesis. And that's how that language works. So now I'm going to go to the complementarian side and we'll look at uh, Tom Schreiner, who has in the book two views on women in ministry, which I found to be very uh, interesting and helpful um, and frustrating. This whole thing's frustrating because you just read so much stuff and you're like, I spent 17 hours wasting my time to realize this is unrelated to the topic. And that's just how it is. But Tom Schreiner in chapter four of two views, starting on page 289, he gives six reasons why he thinks Genesis 2 supports Adam having a role of leadership or authority in his relationship with Eve. So let's walk through those issues one at a time. And um, I don't totally agree with him, but I, I think he, his cumulative case is powerful. So number one, issue number one, God created Adam first and then God created Eve. <clears throat> um, it, is, it is very clear that God made Adam first. As I read the passage, it's like a lot of stuff happens between God makes Adam he makes the animals, he talks, he gives them commands, then he makes Eve. So why is the question? Why in Genesis 2 does God make Adam first? And let me deal, <clears throat> uh, before I talk about this thing of, called primogeniture, which is the idea of the firstborn having authority over the others, let me deal with what I would consider to be, and I'll say it, I consider this to be a dumb argument. But this comes from Dr. Phyllis Tribble, not that everything she ever says is dumb, that's not what I'm saying. The argument itself is weird and bad. But Dr. Phyllis Tribble, she thinks that Adam was not male when he was made. Her view is that Adam doesn't become male until after Eve is made. And then God closes up the flesh of Adam, turning him into a male. So Adam is a sexless being. This is in her 1978 book you have on the screen there called God and the Rhetoric of Sexuality. She says that God's creation of Adam, that quote, the creative process is itself erotic. Like some scholars just are weird, okay? And yet they're very influential, okay? this is she, Phyllis Tribble's a very influential uh, scholar. She's considered a pioneer of feminist interpretations, and she's quoted in many other books. I'll, I'll share some of them with you in a minute. But here's what she says about Adam and Eve. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Tribble says that Adam had no gender or sexual identity, and I'll quote extensively from her book now on page 80 of her book. She says, more important, this creature, speaking of Adam, is not identified sexually. Grammatical gender... Ha-adam, as a masculine word, is not sexual identification, nor is sexuality assumed here since it's created later in the fourth episode. She's talking about when Adam is closed up after making Eve. In other words, the earth creature is not the male, it is not the first man. Although the word ha-adam acquires ambiguous usages and meanings, including an exclusively male reference, in the development of the story, those ambiguities are not present in the first episode. Instead, the earth creature here is precisely and only the human being, so far sexually undifferentiated. The complete story of creaturehood is a process. The tale that is being told at the beginning, some clues are given, further understanding awaits the end. The sexually undifferentiated earth creature 
owes its existence to Yahweh God. Again, that's page 80 of God and the rhetoric of sexuality. Um, so let, let's talk about some of these things. Um, she says that Ha-Adam, that's the Hebrew that we have for Adam in Genesis 2. Ha-Adam. It does not indicate a male, but a sexually undifferentiated person, quote, an earth creature. Adam does connect, the etymology of Adam does connect to the word earth, but but you you don't do, this etymology is not the way you study these things. Like this is, generally speaking, you should be suspicious of arguments based on etymology. Um, but every creature God makes in the garden comes from the earth. Genesis 2.19, it says he made them all out of the ground. He also made Adam out of the ground. So to translate Adam earth creature is to make him undifferentiated from the animals. He is different. Right? He's different. And we shouldn't translate this to earth creature. Right? This this earth creature is obviously not the meaning. Man is the meaning. He's different than the animals, and he's human and he's in God's image. And he's not an earth creature. This is just so weird. Let me continue reading. <laughs> um, my notes. So Adam or Ha Adam, either one of these, are they ever used in ancient Hebrew referring to an earth creature? No. Never. She's offering a, a brand new meaning for a word. Okay. However, Ha'adam frequently means either male or male and female. In Genesis 1, it always means male and female. In Genesis 2, in every single occurrence, it refers to a male, Adam. You could look it up. You could check it out yourself every single time. Um, another challenge for Tribble's view is that she says, look at the moment that she says in Genesis 2 when Adam receives his sexuality. And this is important because this is a defeater for a complementarian view like Shriner's. That God made man first. No, no, no. He made man and woman simultaneously. First, he made a sexless, sexless earth creature and then split into two sexes. Um, but according to her, when Adam receives his sexual nature, he's still just called Ha-Adam. Like in Genesis 2, before and after Adam becomes male, he's called Ha-Adam, even on Tribble's view. So she leans on the meaning of the word, but then she changes the meaning of the word, interpreting it in the middle of the same not just, let me show you. You got to see this, you guys. <laughs> Sorry. Some of the stuff I'm reading, I read gets me frustrated because it's just so ridiculous. It is. I mean, no offense, Dr. Phyllis Tribble, but you're, you're being ridiculous. All right, Genesis 2.22. The rib that God had taken from the man, Ha-Adam, he made into a woman and brought her to Ha-Adam. According to Dr. Phyllis's in uh, interpretation this same word in the same sentence here means sexless earth creature and here it means male <laughs> and it's just like what and then as you read on in verse 23 it says that um she's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she'll be called woman because she was taken out of man um here adam's commentary is that woman was taken out of someone right and the one she was taken out of and this is not ha adam in the hebrew this is ish this is purely a male term like this is he said she woman was taken out of a male in other words adam was already male when eve was taken out so i'm i'm, I'm just saying this is this is not smart um yeah her view is in verse 22 that this is what happens after the intrinsic division ha adam is no longer identical with its past so that when next it speaks a different creature is speaking except this creature that's speaking now says that he was already male when she was taken out of him. So the text clearly disagrees with Tribble's view. Tribble is pioneering a feminist interpretation that is simply not substantiated by scripture, but it's borrowed by others. 
And so we need to talk about it. Adam was male before, right? There's this view that uh, the rib was half of Adam and that, and that Eve was, he, Adam was split in two and then Adam was basically turned into a new creature and Eve was a new creature. But verse 23 of Genesis 2 totally refutes that because she was taken out of Adam, uh, excuse me, taken out of man, which is the Hebrew ish, which is a male term. It, it's not like Adam where it could be used in different ways. This is talking about a man. Woman was taken out of someone who was already a man. Adam was incomplete alone, right? That's what Genesis 2 says. It doesn't say he was unsexed, right? The animals were brought two by two because you guys, we read the story. They all have partners two by two, one male, one female is implied, right? But Adam's male without female. That's why he's incomplete. That's why what's wrong with him being alone. So she's made to correspond to him. Now if she's made to correspond to him who is already male. That makes a lot of sense. It doesn't make any sense if Adam's maleness is not already part of his need for Eve. So these people write theology books that influence seminaries and theologians and they influence pastors and churches. And let me give you a quick understanding. Uh, as I read through different egalitarians, I see Tribble's arguments come up multiple times. And so um, let me show you some of the places we see them, right? Um, Payne leans on Tribble's arguments in various places, not this argument, but other ones. Um, the, the Discovering Biblical Equality, they refer to Tribble's arguments in this book to support their views. Uh, Tucker and Liefeld's, um, oh, did I not bring it up? No, no, I know I have it somewhere. There it is for you guys to see on screen. Daughters of the Church by Tucker and, and, and Liefeld. I'm not, I'm not saying these are bad books. I'm saying that in pieces, they're leaning on these kinds of scholars. So my point here is, and, and I've been accused already of, of using fringe scholarship in my, and I'm like, man, I work so hard not to do that. She's not fringe. She's a pioneer of feminist interpretations. She'll come up again as the strongest objector to a complementarian view of Adam and Eve. And my point is, for all of us to know this, just because you found a scholar or a teacher that you like, it doesn't mean you found truth. If you've only ever heard one smart person talk about an issue, you might not actually know that much about it. And so this is why I want to deal with both sides of the arguments in this series. So back to Schreiner's first reason for seeing Adam's authority in relation with Eve back in Genesis 2. His first reason is the man is made before the woman, significantly before, and he's suggesting this implies like leadership because in Hebrew culture, the firstborn was a leader to the other kids in the culture, especially if it was a son. So this is called primogeniture, primogeniture. Uh, you could look it up online. Uh, it just means first, the first one born. It, that person had a greater authority over the rest. They also generally viewed people who were older as having more leadership than younger people. This is also a strong part of their culture. We don't have it as strong now, right? But our Western culture is really foreign to the Bible here, and we need to let read the Bible through the lens of, of that culture to some degree. So that's important. Now, <clears throat> to help us understand the, the power of Shriner's argument, can you imagine the impact of them being made at the same time? God forms Adam and Eve of the dust of the ground and breathes life into their nostrils, and they're formed at the same time. You know a Galatians would jump on this, and understandably, Right, just like Payne says, they you know complementarians would jump on it if it was written differently. So it, it's it's worth at least acknowledging, right? But you can hopefully feel that there's something going on here. Um, what if Eve had been made before Adam? Like that would seem like wow, that seems to be commentary of some kind. This needs interpretation, is all I'm saying. That may be saying something about their relationship. Now here's less nutty egalitarian pushback on this. <laughs> We're moving away from nutty stuff and onto things that are a little bit more reasonable. So um, in the creation Genesis 2 account, Adam's made before Eve, right? But animals were made before Adam in Genesis 1 through 3. 
So Genesis 1, we read about the creation order, the six days, man's made after animals. Man's last. Man's like the crowning, the top, the end. Mankind, by, by which I mean mankind, not, not males. Um, now, I'm just going to say this argument's interesting, um, but that's Genesis 1. And Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are very separate accounts. Not contradictory, but separate accounts, and they should be read like... You could compare them, but you shouldn't lay them on top of each other. They're not supposed to be laid one on top of the other. They're alongside each other, and that's important. Uh, Genesis 1 focuses on mankind as in their relationship with, with um, creation, but not Adam and Eve's relationship to each other. Also, ancient Hebrews, this is important. Ancient Hebrews would have evaluated human relationships based on order of birth, but completely ignored when animals showed up. Like, they don't care. Okay, so let me give you an example. Um, hey, hey, uh, Jephthah, you're born before your brother. You got leadership in this family in relation to your siblings. Okay, Jephthah, good for you. But guess what? Here's a problem. Our pet Fido was born before you. So Fido is your leader now. Nobody's thinking this. So this is foreign to the culture. They're not, they don't care when the animals were born. Primogeniture only applies to humans among humans. Now, um, another egalitarian pushback, different comes from Dr. Linda Belleville. She says it's speaking of order and source, but it's not speaking of authority or leadership. Adam's made first and Eve is made from Adam, order and source. Order first from Adam, source. It has nothing to do with leadership. Now, here's my pushback on this. And this happens a lot in, in a lot of this stuff in this debate is false dichotomies or, or the situation where you're like, why isn't it both? Why is it one and not the other? So, the presence of order and source, these as concepts, it doesn't negate the presence of authority and hierarchy, right? Just like primogeniture is based on the idea that, hey, your, your, your sibling came first, order, and so that relates to authority. That's the whole idea. So establishing that Adam is the source of Eve or that he's made before her order, it doesn't answer the question of why this is the case. It just completely misses it. So in a sense, uh, Dr. Linda Belleville's argument seems like it, it says, let's not interpret this. Let's read it. Let's observe order and source, but we won't interpret it. We'll just stop there. This will become a massive issue when we get to the New Testament teaching that a husband is the head of his wife down. I'm pointing down because in my notes, it's like down below. It's way down many weeks away, um, but we'll get to it then. So the question we should ask is this, how would this impact original readers? And in the Two Views book, uh, Blomberg has the following quote. I'll put it on your screen for you. Um, I think this is a good observation. He says, the man was created first before the woman. Verse seven, modern readers think little of this and move quickly on, but ancient Jews accustomed to the laws of primogeniture, both in their scriptures and in the surrounding cultures. Do you get that? Both in the scripture and in the surrounding cultures that gave the firstborn a double share of an inheritance. Deuteronomy 21, 17. And he lists several verses. They're on your screen. You can look those up. It might well have seen, they might well have seen this as a sign of privilege. Okay, it just seems likely is what he's suggesting. It seems likely. Now there is um, egalitarian pushback to this as well. So let's look at Mary Conway, her pushback in chapter one of uh, Discovering Biblical Equality. And she'll say, hey, the Bible doesn't actually care about all this primogeniture stuff. Jacob and Esau, Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph and his brothers, those of you who know the Bible, these are all situations where the order is reversed where the younger leads the older in some way. So let me read to you her quote on this topic. She says that the woman is formed after the man does not imply subordination or inferiority either, since there are numerous examples in scripture of a younger child being given preference. Joseph, she talks about Joseph, Jacob, David, Gideon. 
The firstborn is often associated with the concept of preeminence. However, and this may have been relevant in regard to some New Testament passages. Then she lists a number of passages, Old and New Testament actually, that do rely on primogeniture being a real thing. So um, let me just get clarity here because this is again where I'm, I'm going to start to confuse people. I mean, not on purpose. <laughs> I'm doing my best. But what, what Mary Conway, what Dr. Conway is not disputing, she's not disputing that there's a parallel between firstborn kids and Adam being made first. She's not disputing that, right? She instead relies on something else. She says, hey, look, the Bible doesn't care really about primogeniture. So when it has firstborn, it's not implying anything. Um, now she acknowledges that firstborn throughout scripture is often associated with preeminence. But then she lists a number of exceptions, which I put on your screen and I listed the names as well. What's, well, how do we see our way through the weeds here? What's really going on? Okay, my opinion, my best understanding is what's notable about the exceptions, David, right? Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh. What's notable about these exceptions is that they're exceptions. The only reason why they're such a shock or so, the only reason why they're even noticed is because they're written in a background where primogeniture is assumed and is presumed. And unless you have a statement about an exception in the Bible, then primogeniture becomes the rule. And that seems consistent throughout the text of scripture. So the Bible's not saying we don't care about primogeniture. It doesn't, it's not like something you should look at as a way of understanding things you're reading. It's rather these exceptions to the rule are teaching us something, but the rule's still there. So all of those things are remarkable, all those exceptions. Um, in all of them, we'd be right to assume the elder had a special role. This is the key part. With David, right? With Joseph, with, with Ephraim and Manasseh, with all of those examples, Jacob and Esau, you'd be right to assume the elder had a special role unless you had specific things in the story telling you otherwise. That's why Genesis 2 stands out as a case of the rule and not the exception because there's nothing in there to tell us otherwise. So unless she's using exceptions to show us there's no such thing as a rule, it's not really a worthwhile argument in my opinion. None of her examples are... Um, are like Genesis 2 with Adam and Eve, where there's no statement about exception. All of our examples are about clear exceptions. So early readers of Genesis, here's, a, here's my conclusion. Early readers of Genesis, tentative conclusion, would have been very likely to understand Adam as having some higher authority due to his being made first. It seemed very likely. Now, it's only one point. I'm not going to base my whole understanding of men and women relationships on, on that one issue. But that rebuttal seems to fail. Now, to support this, I'll point briefly to a New Testament passage everyone's going to want to fight about, but I'm going to wait and fight you all on it a little bit later. And it's 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 through 13. And um, I, I, I'm going to point this out because egalitarians, by and large, when they read Genesis, they do not reference the New Testament. They don't, they don't, it doesn't come into the picture at all. For the most part, as I read many egalitarians, it just doesn't come in. But sometimes the New Testament is giving commentary on the Old Testament. So let me just read it, verse 12 in particular. He says, I don't permit a woman to teach or to have authority, exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. This seems to be like, let me put it this way. Paul is drawing at least some interpretation. And we'll save our understanding of this. Does it really mean teach? What does it mean by authority? Is it talking about domineering? Is it, is it about feminist issues in Ephesus at the time? We'll talk about all that stuff later. For now, let's just notice this. Paul seems to be interpreting Adam being made first as being very relevant to the very nature 
of the relationship between man and woman. So I think that First Timothy might be relying on the idea of Adam's being made first, that him his order, that that refers to some sense of his role. So we'll deal with that in part nine, I think, of this series. Um, so point one, Shriner's point number one seems likely. Point number two was going to be a lot brief, more brief. Uh, point number two is that God gave Adam the command not to eat from the tree of knowledge uh, of good and evil, but he didn't give that command directly to Eve. So by commanding Adam alone in Genesis 2, God may have been giving him a higher authority. And I, I'm going to say this, I'm just going to make the case, then I'll explain why I don't lean on this one by itself. So it is interesting, though, to note, um, Adam was given the command apart from Eve. He had to then communicate it to Eve. Eve had to learn it from Adam. That's That would seem to put him in a in a relational, like, teaching, leadership-type role with Eve in, in, that, in that one relationship. You could consider also that he would be the one to have to show her the animals and teach her the names that he gave to all the animals. So when you add all that together, it starts to feel like, yeah, maybe, maybe there's something there. But let's remember number two, because it becomes stronger in light of number six, which we'll get to much later in today's video, which will be 18 hours long. All right. Um, so I'm going to throw a maybe on number two. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, there seems to be like several points of things there that could have could have been seen by original readers as, yeah, Adam seems to be looking like he's in a leadership type role here in the relationship between man and woman, even though woman also has dominion over creation. Schreiner's third point is that God created Eve to be a helper for Adam. This is probably one of the bigger issues I've like shifted my view on. And it's in Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And that word helper is, there's a big debate here. There's also a debate on fit for him. That's konegdo in, in Hebrew. But the, the debate on konegdo depends on how you interpret helper. So we're going to focus on that. Because if you, depending on how you interpret this, it may solve your debate on konegdo as well. So, so let me get into it. Uh, what is meant by the Hebrew term azer, which is translated helper in almost all translations or help meet or something along those lines. The um, the egalitarians, uh, the, sorry, the complementarians often argue that this implies subordination and submission. Um, in English, it could. The word helper could in English refer to somebody who's like subordinate or, or under the leadership or authority of another. It could, but it can also not mean that. Like when a, when a teacher is helping a student, they're the helper for this, but they're not under the authority of the student. So the English word doesn't really mean that, even though it could mean that. It doesn't just inherently mean that. And I think the same is going to be true for the Hebrew. Complementarians tend to assume, as I read their writings, it's just assumed that the word helper means lesser authority. As, as if that's just what helper means automatically. And this is where egalitarians have really strong arguments against the complementarian view. Um, and they've changed my mind. So <clears throat> what is meant and implied by the term azer? Uh, some argue it implies subordination. Others say, no, it doesn't mean that at all. Let me talk about uh, Linda Belleville, Dr. Belleville on this. She says, she, egalitarian, she says that every other use of Azer in the Old Testament does not have any sort of connotation of submission attached to it. Now, I'm not going to walk through all of these, but I'm going to put them on your screen. Here's a bunch of verses you could look up that have, just look for the word helper, right? Or help, you know, that kind of word in those verses. You're going to see that's, that's the Hebrew Azer right there. In every one of these things, there's no, there's no reason to think anywhere else in, Gen in, in uh, the Bible, the Old Testament, where Azer comes up that it inherently means the one helping is in a lower position of authority than the one being helped. 
There's just nothing. Like I just read it and I'm like, there's nothing here. I don't get it. The most common person that is discussed as being an azer is God in the Bible. He's our helper. Let me take you um, to uh, one example, Hosea 13 verse 9. <clears throat> he destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. And that, that Notice this, even in the English, the English translators here, they translated helper because even the translators don't think the word helper means subordinate. They just think it means you're, I'm, you're the one helping. You're helping me. That's, that's all it means. So um, helper doesn't seem to automatically mean that. It's used of God and it doesn't mean God is subordinate to them. Even in English, the word isn't meant to be that. So I think that the Galatians have some really strong arguments here, but I also think they can go too far. So Linda Belleville and many Egalitarians will go too far and they'll try to suggest that helper, it's not just neutral where it doesn't mean authority or submission. It just, it, it actually implies something even bigger and better than that, right? So um, egalitarian Linda Belleville says that helper implies help that God alone can provide. Help that God alone can provide. Like as if when you're when you're a Jew, you, you, you would see the word azer and you'd think, azer, help that only God can provide instead of just, help right and if you just know language you're like that seems like you're adding a lot of baggage to a word but an example of, of why i don't take this view um would be ezekiel 12 14 because some will will like philippine does this we'll read from quotes from him in a moment where he's going to really elevate eve almost above adam actually in his interpretation of genesis 2 um, and I will scatter toward every wind, all who are around him, his helpers and all his troops. I will unsheath the sword after them. These are those who are helping. Um, they're, they're providing military aid. The word helper here, it's not aid only God can provide. It's just like in this case, military aid. So Azer doesn't seem to have subordination or submission implied in it. I don't see any context in the, New, in the Old Testament where it has inherently in the word help subordination implied anywhere outside Genesis 2. And so I'm not going to read it into Genesis 2. And it doesn't seem like it's part of the Hebrew word. Like it's not just this known thing. Now, uh, Craig Blomberg <clears throat> in the Two Views book, he offers a more like nuanced view where he's not going to say Azer means subordinate. <clears throat> His view is different. His complementarian case is that Azer is the one who doesn't bear the primary responsibility but it's the one who's being helped that has the primary responsibility. I'll quote him now from page 129 and 130 in the Two Views book. He says, um, but what makes Azer, an Azer, a helper in each context is that he or she comes to the aid of someone else who bears the primary responsibility for the activity in question, implying Adam's primarily responsible. Um, now, maybe Adam's responsible, but my question is, does the word Azer mean that? And I'm going to say, I don't think so. I, I would disagree with Craig Blomberg on this. And yeah, he's smarter than me, but hey, we can disagree with people. You disagree with me and I don't care. So um, <clears throat> let me give, give you my reasons why. Uh, in most of the passages, and I put them on your screen earlier, I'll do it again. In most of these passages where you look at um, the use of Azer, it doesn't, there's nothing in there that's implying anything about <clears throat> who's responsible in my opinion. But here's an example where it seems to be a refutation, like it seems to be used in the opposite sense. So Psalm 146, verses 3 through 7. Is the azer helping the person who's primarily responsible for the task? 
so here it says, put not your trust in princes, don't trust princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation when his breath departs and he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help, Azer, is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. And then what is God helping in this context? Who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Now, I don't think you could argue that the hungry are supposed to feed themselves, but when it comes to justice for the oppressed, God is going to give you help in the form of justice for the oppressed. I don't think God requires the oppressed to provide their own justice. Like it's not their primary responsibility. And the reason why I read verse started in verse three is because it is the primary responsibility of princes or governmental rulers. It is their job to make sure that the oppressed get justice. That's, and, and of course, um, in like modern critical race theory, stuff like that, and critical theory, you're going to have redefinitions of the terms oppressed. And, but I'm not going to throw those things away. Like it is the job of government to make sure that the oppressed get justice. It's not the job of the oppressed. So here's an example where Azer seems like it doesn't fit Blomberg's definition. So God's helping give the protection that's supposed to come from princes, justice for the oppressed. Um, but it's not job. It's not God's job in that sense. Um or excuse me, it's not the oppressed job in that sense. Okay, so I conclude this. The complementarian view is really weak if it's based on the word Azer. Uh, and this is probably the most popular perspective on Genesis 2. It says it says that she's his helper. Doesn't that mean that she's subordinate? And my answer is going to be no. Azer doesn't seem to mean that. Now let me talk briefly about some egalitarian overreach from Philip Payne, where he, I think, goes too far. Um, he says, in no other occurrence in the Old Testament does this noun refer to an inferior, but always to a superior or an equal. And actually the truth is it goes both ways. It, 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 sometimes it's superior, sometimes it's equal, sometimes it's it's uh, a subordinate. It's unrelated is my point. So perhaps a better view is that it just doesn't refer to rank at all. Azer just doesn't mean that. But he goes on to say a couple things. I'll read them now from pages 45 and 44 in his book. He says, this expression, Azer, highlights the role of the woman as the rescuer of man a strength corresponding to him, and hence, no less than an equal. He also says, help expresses that a woman is a help slash strength who rescues or saves man. Payne will actually go on to call woman man's savior, right? She's she's the savior of, of man. This is... Um, this is too much, okay? This is too much. But let me dig into this a little bit more because it does pop up in multiple egalitarian scholars and authors. So egalitarian Mary Conway, uh, in Discovering Biblical Equality, pages 41 and 42, she says the following, and I'll put it on your screen. She says that Azer has multiple root connotations and she's going to try to reinterpret it so it's not, it's not help, it means like strength. And this is going to get complicated. So suck it up. We got to dig in. All right. In his article, she says, women, a power equal to man. R. David Friedman notes that the term Azer may well derive from a related root originally spelled with a Gaian, whose spelling became conflated with a similar Semitic root spelled with an Ion. Although the meanings remained separate, the roots became homonyms or homomorphs, words that, that, that are identical in spelling and eventually became identical in sound. Um, the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament and the Dictionary of Classical Hebrew recognize this possibility in their inclusion of a third root, Azer three, glossed as strength, might, or valor. This, support, this supports a translation of a strength slash 
power, notice that word power, that's super important. Um, did I get the wrong quote up for you guys? I do. My bad. There it is. That's the right quote, Mary Conway. Um, but you'll notice what she says here is that this supports a translation of strength slash power in her last sentence, equivalent to him, equally able to carry out the creation mandate assigned to humanity. Now, I'm not going to get into tons of detail on this because this is literally just taking an hour and a half to walk through everything. Um, but the short version is this. Etymology is used to translate Azer as strength or power instead of helper. And then that changes uh, the whole phrase. Eve is a helper who is equivalent to, to Adam. And that's how it's often interpreted. Um, excuse me, a power equal to him, a strength equal to him, but not a helper. So this is the article that she quotes. This is all based upon this man's work, David Friedman and his book, a power, his four page article, a power equal woman, a power equal to man. This is quoted a lot. David Friedman's quoted through many egalitarians and this article is lousy. Okay. I'm just going to say not, I'm not trying to insult David Friedman, but look, the truth of God is what I care about here. And I, and I don't want to like do this thing where scholars like pretend to respect arguments because they're trying to respect people. Like I respect David Freeman, but you're, you're, his reasoning is severely problematic here. And I'll give you guys a link that will walk you through that from a PhD. Um, so he says, okay, from Azer, we go to a related word to another word that's similar to that root. Then he reconstructs a supposed history of how those words joined and how they changed over time. And it depends on his belief about when the pronunciation of ayin changed in Hebrew. And then he and this is important in his four page article, he uses his own translations to prove things. So he says, Azer means this, look at my translation of this verse. See, I've proved my point. But when you look at, you know, committee based respected translations, they don't use his translation. This is bad scholarship. Like you, you don't use your own translation to prove that your translation of things is right. Right. This is, this is weird. <laughs> this is weird. So, um, the article's not, sufficiently robust to be able to, you know, build his strong case. And there is a response I'll just point you guys to. I put a link down below in the description from a full analysis, a very thoughtful analysis of Friedman's article by Dr. Mark Stephen Francois. And it's a 22 minute video. It's on YouTube. It's free. It's down below. And it's about as accessible as it can get for a layman. My own opinion is this. Now, trying to slow things down a little bit, right? Sorry for the radical confusion that I just caused. I know I just lost viewers like that's, that's how it is. That's how it is, man. This is, we're going deep. Um, my own opinion is this, the cons there's a consistent thing that is in almost every use of Azer, almost every single use. And that is this, that the person who's being helped, they can't do it alone. And that's why they need a helper. That's almost every use. There's one use where God is, God wasn't helped by somebody and it's not in that context, but every other use, it's always someone who can't do it alone. And that fits Genesis two really well. Adam can't be fruitful and multiply alone. So a lot of the debate on the complementarian or egalitarian side depends on word meanings. And um, I just want to remind you guys, if you like, maybe you've just been totally confused. Then what I recommend you do is just stick with what the majority of translations say and don't follow somebody because they're confusing you on these issues. Um, Azer is also qualified as fit for him. Konegdo uh, is the Hebrew that could be translated as corresponding to him. Some try to make it like his equal in all ways. And I, they're just, it's just, they're going too far. They're just going too far. But I did change my mind in this study. Um, so when Adam is, is told that Eve, you know, is going to be his helper. We're told this in Genesis two, I don't think Azer 
has any subordination or submission implied in the word itself. I don't see any context where it's used that way. I don't see, I think the egalitarians also overreach. I think everybody's trying to grab this word and stretch it far beyond what it's supposed to be saying. It's just saying Adam can't be fruitful, multiply alone. He needs Eve. It's not good that man's alone. That's all it's saying. Now, however, you could try to rescue Schreiner's point, number three, about Eve being Adam's helper by saying, it's not about the word Azer. It's not about him, her being the helper. It's just about the whole flow of the passage. Eve is being made for Adam. Adam, right? He's there and Eve's being made for him. And so this implies a sense of leadership in Adam. Um, now, you might not like that argument, but I do think that that's actually what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 7, 11, verses 7 through 10. And I'll get into this in detail, all the debates, when we do the video on 1 Corinthians 11. For man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Okay, she's made from his rib. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Now, we'll talk about head coverings later. So allow me, please, to keep you from going down that road in your mind right now. We will deal, I'll deal with it in detail later. Paul does seem to be saying that Eve was made, not the word helper, not azer, it's not the word that matters. It's the whole flow of the passage. Eve was made for Adam, and this implied his leadership. This seems to be Paul's interpretation of Genesis chapter 2. So we'll dig into that more as we get there. Schreiner's fourth point, his fourth point for how Adam had leadership is that Adam exercised his leadership by naming the creature God formed out of Adam's rib woman. I don't like the word creature there, but that's what he says. In Genesis 2 and 3, this happens two times. All right, let's look at this here. Genesis 2.23, just to remind us. This is going to be one of the harder videos to watch. I know it's just, it's just heady stuff, but in Genesis 2.23, it says, the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She's actually called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. It's, that's, I think it's kind of poetic. But he names her there. But he also, in Genesis 3.20, <clears throat> he does it again. Then the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So he names her twice. Uh, first woman, giving her like her her categorization, then giving her an actual name uh, individually. So this is after naming the animals. Uh, it doesn't make her the same as animals. Um, that's dumb. Um, and it's totally against the passage. But it shows a sense of leadership, I think it does. It seems to, within the equality that they have. Eve, for instance, did not name herself. Nothing in creation named itself. But God didn't name Eve either. He let Adam do it. This would be a way of giving her equal authority. If, if God had said, um, I'm going to name, I name you Adam, I name you Eve, God could have done this. But he didn't. They could have named each other. Adam names, names Eve, Eve names Adam. That would be a sort of mutual submission view that a lot of egalitarians push. So, yeah, this seems important. Now, there are a number of objections to this. Phyllis Tribble, who we've, we've talked about before, she gives... This is this is a more sane perspective, but she gives the most significant objection to this. Schreiner notes... He says, the most significant objection to this interpretation is found in the work of Phyllis Tribble, pointing to a number of texts in which name is joined with call. The naming of animals, according to Tribble, signified Adam's power and authority over them, but no parallel can be drawn to 223 since the woman is not named there. Let me translate into normal people language. He calls her woman, but he doesn't give her a name name. 
that's that's the emphasis there. Like he's not really being named. He's just calling her woman. He didn't really give her a name. So Tribble's point here is that naming requires um, also the word name and call to both be used in the same sentence. I'll give you an example of this from the Old Testament. So, sorry, just having some delay there. Okay, Genesis 4, 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city, name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So it has the word call, and it has the word name. This is, um, this is according to Tribble, like what's necessary. You have to have these two words, name and call, and if you don't have them in the sentence, it's not actually naming. And this might seem kind of wooden, because, well, it is, um, but let's talk about it. Genesis 4, 25 and 26 is another example she gives. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. Then in verse 27, Seth bore a son, and he called his name Enosh. So we, we have call and name put together. So she says, hey, the notion of naming is only present when both of these words are together, the verb call and the noun name. Now here's Schreiner's response to this, and I think it's a pretty good one. Um, I, can, I think I have it for you on screen. Maybe I didn't get it into my into my presentation. I'll just read it for you guys. Uh, Schreiner's response is that Tribble's argument is unpersuasive. And listen carefully to his reasoning here. She's correct that the noun name is usually linked with call in naming formulas, but she's mistakenly, she mistakenly concludes that noun, the noun name must be present in order for naming to occur. Such a conclusion demands more precision from language than is warranted, right? They're not doing math, okay? It's not science, it's, it's, it's language. <laughs> For we must not demand in advance that naming occurs only when a predetermined pattern is followed. The repetition of the verb kara, which is call, in Genesis 2, 19 through 23, links the naming of the woman with the naming of the animals, so that the reader naturally recognizes the parallel between the two accounts. Adam perceived she was woman precisely because she was taken from the man, revealing that his classification was in accord with reality, and that he understood the remarkable difference between woman and the animals. Let's just look at the passage so you guys can see this. Genesis 2, 19 through 20, and then verse 23. Um, so look at how Adam names the animals. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the, cre the living creature, that was its name. So we have name and call both of you. So Triple will acknowledge that this is a uh, leadership and authority that Adam's taking over these creatures. The man gave names to all livestock and to all the birds in the heavens of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, in the same context, he's put to sleep. He wakes up and then he names her. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. This just seems to be deliberately. God seems to be giving us the context of when Adam names Eve because it's connected. That's the idea. So it's the same sort of thing. I think that Schreiner's objection succeeds. Uh, Tribble has another objection, though to the naming thing. And Tribble's going to say, hey, um, and well, let me just read to you how Schreiner summarizes it. Now, Schreiner, I think, does a better job summarizing it than she does. So I'm going to read his summary. Uh, Tribble's more substantive objection is that calling this, pers this person woman cannot be equated with naming because woman is not a name. It's a common noun, not a proper noun. 
It designates gender. It doesn't specify a person. Tribble's comment reveals she misunderstands the parallel between the naming of the animals and the naming of the woman. When Adam named the animals, he did not give them personal or proper names. This is key, guys. He classified the animals into distinct groups, presumably distinguishing between, between say, lions, tigers, and bears. He did not name any tigers Tony. He identified them as tigers over and against bears. So too, it is completely irrelevant that a personal or proper name is lacking for the woman in verse 23. Then in naming woman, Adam was classifying her, in effect, distinguishing her from the other creatures named. He recognizes her distinctiveness, right? She's made in the image of God, y'all. And uh, just like Adam, and aptly captured it with the name woman, Isha, thereby noticing how closely related she was to himself as man. To conclude, male leadership is communicated by the naming of the woman and the parallel with naming the animals stands, even though the biblical narrator hardly suggests animals and women are parallel in every way. And let me just stop. Any egalitarian that responds to this by saying, Mike, you're saying women are like animals? Like, you, you, you are so not listening to anything anyone says like you're just you're just you're just like a person waiting to get mad okay i i'm sorry this series is not for you you just, you just you're just gonna find things to hate um nobody's saying that um i think shriner's obviously right here though tribble acknowledges that the naming of animals is related to authority now let me let me uh remind you this is from her book she says on page 97 the earth creature was specifically given dominion over the animals through naming quote unquote she thinks this is an act of dominion but then and this is the important part she fails to separate the naming of eve as woman from that because she makes an arbitrary rule about the word name and call have to be in close proximity to each other that doesn't seem to work and then she suggests woman's not a proper name but then the animals probably didn't get proper names either they got just classifications so um philip payne also he offers basically he just echoes phyllis tribble here she's the source and he echoes her others echo her as well i don't notice anything different that other people add but mary conway mary conway tries to find a different way around the naming issue and this is in chapter one of discovering biblical equality this book right here um mary conway on page 48 says the following she says the man the fact that the man names the woman as he previously did the animals however is also not a sign of the man's superiority or dominance. Naming in the Old Testament is an act of discerning a trait or function or ability that a person already uh, that already exists in a person that's being named, not a sign of authority over that person. So she says, "Hey, this is an act of discernment from Adam, not authority. He's not claiming any sort of control." And now things get weird again because she's going to refer to and and as you check her footnotes and you know, here's a, here's a, uh, just a general rule is check footnotes. If you really want to study things deeply, um, she gets this idea that Adam's doing discernment and he's not, he doesn't have authority here. She gets this from a 12 page paper published in 1988 by George Ramsey, George Ramsey's paper, which, um, you can, you can check out. There's all the details you need on the page on the screen in front of you now, if you guys want to see it, but here's some notes I have from reading the paper. First, uh, note that Ramsey's opening is a refutation of Tribble specifically. Like the opening of this paper, Ramsey's specifically refuting Tribble. This is why Mary Conway is not going to go down the Philip Payne and Phyllis, uh, Tribble direction because she's believing this paper and says, yeah, they've been refuted. So instead, this is a new route to get around the naming thing. Um, Ramsey seems to be weighing two possible options and only two options. This is important. 
one, either naming is a discernment of traits, right? You're just you're just noticing the trait somebody has, or name is an act of dominance, like using magical power words to make somebody's future by by giving them a name. Like our, we're not even talking about the Bible anymore. Like at this point, either according to Ramsey, it's an act of dominance that uses magical power words to create someone's future, or it's an act of discernment. These are the only two options according to Ramsey. So his whole paper fails because he's asking the wrong questions. I have four major problems with his approach that I'll mention real quick, and you guys can check out his paper if you'd like to read it on your own. Um, the context of Genesis 1 and 2 is the best place to look for the meaning behind the naming of Adam and Eve, and uh, of, of Eve in particular. And Adam naming the animals and then her this seems to be the context that, that's supposed to give us understanding. But in his paper, Ramsey deliberately ignores Genesis 1 and 2. He will not even approach the text. So he refuses to interpret it in context. That's a big deal. Number two, second major issue. If Adam is using discernment of traits, if that's the whole point, pardon me, it's not a challenge to the idea that the person who's using discernment also has authority. Right? Because these are two different issues. One question is, um, why was this name chosen? Oh, well, that was discernment. Adam discerned that she's like him, so she's Isha. The other question is, why is Adam the one doing the naming and not somebody else? Do you, do you see how these are different issues? We're, we're just sort of moving away from the question of why it's Adam doing the naming to why her name is woman. These are different questions. So... He again, he argues against a magical view instead of the actual complementarian view. Let me quote from his paper. He says, it's very difficult to identify a passage where the narrator suggests that the name given is intended to shape the character of the recipient. I'm like, yeah. Well, how is this a response to complementarian views about the naming of Eve? Like, it doesn't make any sense. But this is this is what Mary Conway leans on. Now, when you get it from Mary Conway and discovering biblical equality, you don't realize that Ramsey's actually saying these things because she doesn't make it clear. Ramsey shouldn't be used in this discussion because Ramsey is having his own little side conversation <laughs> on a totally different issue. Um, it's like Ramsey's arguing against the idea that naming something is an act of power by which the namer would determine the nature or the destiny of the person being named instead of the question of why is that guy doing the naming and not somebody else? Very different things. Third problem with Ramsey's paper is it poisons the well to associate authority with magic in names. I see no reason why this is uh, included in the paper at all or, or why that paper is considered relevant to the question of Genesis 2. Um, and there's more I could talk about on that, but I'll just move on. Number four, fourth point is Ramsey fails to note how consistently a person in authority is the one being the namer. So consistently in, in scripture, the person who names another is someone who's in authority in relation to them. This happens over and over, completely ignored by Ramsey. Uh, for example, he suggests that a parent being the one to name a child is merely tradition. That's the only the only reason. Sorry, I talked too much. Um, so this this misses the obvious authority a parent has. Like, imagine if if a, if if someone come up to you and they said, "Hey." You know, naming is a function of discernment. So I'm going to name your kid because I'm better at discerning than you are. You would naturally respond with, by what authority do you think you can name my kid? Because everybody knows this, <laughs> that, that Ramsey's making stuff up. All right, so his, um, his strongest points, though, are his counterexamples. And this you'll hear from every egalitarian. 
that in Genesis 16, 13, and this is the strongest point, that um, Hagar names God. And now you can't say Hagar is having authority over God, right? She called the name, right, of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing, right, El Roy. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I've seen him who looks after me. Beautiful moment, beautiful passage. So Hagar names God. Um, and my two challenges to this, my two responses to this are, one, that's God. <laughs> like, I mean, God's obviously different than the idea of naming people. Um, but also, God's not being named here as though he had no name. God has a name already in scripture, right? It's, it's rather, this is in addition. So it's, it's more like a nickname. Hagar's assigning a nickname because there's a relational quality that's going on there. So this is different. This is more like a nickname than a naming. And so it feels like a very different kind of situation to me. Uh, his other challenge to this view that Adam is exercising some kind of authority in naming Eve is Genesis 26 verses 17 through 21. I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'll just mention this. Isaac names two wells, then he abandons them and other people control the wells. So Ramsey says the following. The naming of these sites, even as he relinquishes authority over them, points away from the thesis that bestowing names is an act of control. Um, so this seems weaker than the, the previous example because Isaac could be naming them as an act of control, as if he's saying, hey, rightly, I dug these wells, I'm going to name them, they're mine, but I'm walking away even though it's wrong and I should have authority over these wells. That seems to be what he's doing as you read the passage, as you look at the stuff that's going on in this, in this section. So another um, thing in scripture is that Jacob names places in the book of Genesis multiple times. He names places. Now, Ramsey interprets this a special way. He says, Ramsey uh, says that there's no connotation of Jacob having authority over those places. And I'm honestly, I'm just not sure about that. Um, I think that when you read Genesis, Jacob's naming places that his children are supposed to inherit. And so I think that when we, what we see in Genesis is, the, is almost like the initial scouting out of the land, almost kind of a claiming of the land that later the, the descendants, 400 years later, will come and, and take. And so I do think that there seems to be meaning in the naming in Genesis here against what Ramsey says. Um, and then Ramsey strangely admits that naming is associated with dominion in his paper on page 34. He says, rather than naming Rather, he says, the naming certifies the dominion of God over those places, a dominion which Jacob discerns. So that when Jacob's naming them, it means God has dominion. So naming does have dominion associated now. And it's like, I just can't tell, like, the rules keep changing. Ramsey, what are you doing? So, um, yeah, this is the stuff you see. Look, this, I got frustrated reading some of these egalitarian arguments because you spent many hours on it and you're like, that was a waste of time. You might have spent the last 15 minutes listening to this naming thing and thought, well, that feels like a big waste of time. I think that the simplistic understanding that naming seems like it's a leadership type thing seems legit. But, but sometimes it just takes a lot of arguing to get back to what seemed obvious. Finally, let's imagine for a second that Dr. Conway's view is right, that naming is only about discernment and not about authority because right? it could just be both. But let's pretend it's only about discernment and had nothing to do with authority. Again, let me ask, why doesn't anyone just name your kids? Why not have the person with the most discernment do the naming? Why the parents? What would be the response if somebody with discernment came and renamed your village or renamed your child without your consent? You named him Bob, but I'm telling you, I have better discernment than you. 
His name is Bilbo Bob. Right? It's, it seems natural to respond to such a person. By what authority do you presume to name my town or name my kid? So the last pushback I have from egalitarians on the naming thing, the very last thing, is that um, uh, naming... Um, well, okay, it's kind of, it's kind of weird. Um, let me see if I can try to explain it. It's from Philip Payne, and it's the idea that Adam is, yeah, he names Eve, but that's not the main point of the passage. That's not the main meaning of the passage. So Philip Payne, on page 45 of his book, Man and Woman, One in Christ, he says, the following verse, after Adam names Eve, the following verse, so God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, confirms that the primary message of verses 18 through 20 is not that the man names the animals, but that no animal is a suitable partner for man. Now, I'm super suspicious of people who try to dismiss what seems like a legitimate interpretation by saying, but that's not the primary message. I just think anyone who says, well, the Bible's more about this than it is about that. Like, I'm just super suspicious. Like, I think this keeps us from thinking biblically about things. He also goes on and makes a second point. There's the last thing I'll say about the naming, I think. And um, he says, at the crucial point of creation of woman, man is entirely passive. This is because man's asleep, right? Man's in a deep sleep. And so Payne's like, look, man's passive when Eve's being made. So Eve, so man can't have an authority role in Eve's life. Uh, you know, Eve, uh, Adam specifically. This is, this is weird to me. Again, this is just weird to me. Like, I don't understand why this is a powerful argument to anybody. Um, Philip Payne included, who, who, by the way, is an incredibly nice and likable guy, okay, and smart and incredible memory and has written thousands of pages on this stuff. I'm not attacking him personally, but I'm just saying I'm going to call the arguments as I see them. I think he enlarges one feature of the narrative in order to ignore the other. It's almost as though from Philip Payne's perspective, in order for Adam to have authority in Eve's life, Adam would have to make Eve I think we're making it impossible to have a, a, a biblical interpretation here. We're just forcing views. So the naming thing, I conclude, the naming thing seems to imply some degree of relational authority between Adam and Eve. Not between all men and all women. Between Adam and Eve. Now, their fifth and sixth points from uh, Schreiner we'll talk about in a bit because we're going to do those. Those are in Genesis 3. They're all about the fall. And you'll see how when you add it all together, it feels like the composite case starts to feel pretty strong. So to look at the cumulative impact, I want you to consider if the creation account in Genesis 2 happened this way instead and how this would change your view of it. Imagine if God formed Adam and Eve at the same time instead of Adam first and Eve from Adam. Imagine that God formed Adam and Eve both from the ground instead of Eve from Adam. Imagine that God brought the animals to Eve and Adam and together they named them instead of making Adam name them and then tell Eve about them. Imagine if Eve named her husband and Adam named his wife. Do you feel the difference? Like, do you feel that like the flow of the passage does seem to indicate that in the relationship between man and woman, there's a difference and it is in some relation to, to leadership that specifically husband and wife here. I, I'm not going to extend this to all men and all women because I think that that's a mistake. I think it's wrong. And we'll talk about that. So I reject, though, the egalitarian view, and this is huge. This is this is 99% of the debate right here in Genesis 1 through 3 in this one sentence, right? I reject the view presented by, say, um, Craig Keener in uh, in his book. Oh, where is it? I, I guess I didn't grab it. I feel like such a loser. Um, in his book, um, 
Paul and Paul Women and Wives. That's the name of the book. I can't show you the picture of it right now. So his he says the wife's subordination is presented only as a result of the fall, as a result of her husband's sinful power, sinful abuse of power over her. Every egalitarian in the world agrees that subordination of woman only shows up if it ever shows up in Genesis three after the fall as part of the curse. What I'm saying is I reject that view. This is 99% of the debate. I think that there's a godly, tensionless leadership that Adam has with Eve in Genesis 2 as part of God's good creation. That seems to be what the passage is saying, whether I like it or not. That seems to be what's going on there. Equality is seen in Genesis 1 because they're both in God's image. They're both given dominion. And Adam's leadership is seen in Genesis 2 because he's made first. He names Eve. She's made for him, implying there's an authority difference. He's given the commands and the tasks instead of it being given to both of them. But it's also limited because imagine if um, imagine if he was presented along with the animals instead of instead of as part of Adam who recognizes that she's like him. She's bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. She's made from him, not, not from other things. Um, she's under his leadership, right? But sharing in dominion over the earth. So it's limited. It's very limited. And a lot of complementarians don't limit these things and they become abusive. In fact, I think abuses are usually when dominion over women becomes a thing instead of a type of godly leadership and submission, voluntary submission. So, um, so yeah, this is key. This is key. All right, before that's all before the fall. Uh, we're going to read the story of the fall now. We're going to Genesis 3 now. This is the last leg of today's video, but it'll also be shorter than the Genesis 2 discussion. And here are the relevant things before I read Genesis 3 that I want to encourage you guys to be thinking about as I just read through 20 verses to look at the passage. Um, Satan tempts Eve first. Notice, just notice it. Notice that Adam's accountability is different than Eve's accountability in the passage, it seems. God instructs Adam first, and he approaches Adam first after the sin to rebuke him. And notice, this is key, notice the difference between Eve's curse and Adam's curse. So as I read the passage, kind of just like observe those things, and then we'll get into several different debates on Genesis chapter 3. Okay, here we go. Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? As he calls to the man, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave me. <laughs> He just brings out the blame thrower. Right? Everybody does here. The woman said, or the man said, the woman you, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is 
this that you have done. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field on your belly, you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Pause to appreciate the first prophecy of Jesus. Verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply, multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat um, of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for dust, uh, for you are dust and to dust, you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Okay. Uh, read through the passage and now we're going to deal with a ton of issues that all flood up and I'll move as quickly as I'm capable of doing here. So first we'll just, we'll just go jump back onto Schreiner. He, he gave us four points um, that except for one of them, I would say I agreed with. Uh, one of them I would change and modify and then say there's still a relevance there. But the fifth point he gives us is about Genesis 3. He says, hey, the serpent subverted God's pattern of leadership by tempting Eve rather than Adam. This is a very common complementarian argument. They go, hey, look, when Satan goes to Eve, it's because he's trying to go around God's leader, Adam. To me, um, egalitarians, I'll make you smile. I think this is the weakest part of the argument so far. It's like the weakest of all the complementarian stuff, at least that Triner has put forward. I agree with the other things for the most part, um, but not this. Um, the serpent didn't say, did Adam really say? Right? It's not like he went to Eve. Did Adam really tell you this? He's not challenging Adam. He's challenging her obedience to God. He supports this. Uh, Shriner supports this with an appeal to 1 Timothy 2.14. Let's go there. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get into this in detail in the future, you guys. But um, it's the point Shriner's making here is that the subversion of male authority is part of what happened when the serpent tempted Eve. Um, and that Paul's working with that idea. But I, I just think it's too much. It's just, I feel like we're stretching the text a little bit. So maybe, maybe he's right and I'm just not seeing it. I just don't quite see it. Okay. It may be possible, but it seems the verse could be explained very well in at least one other way. That Eve's deception is part of the reason for the current state of things. That that's all in First Timothy he's saying. Eve's deception is part of the reason for the current state of things, not that it has some other connotations to it. So I would not lean on point five at all. I would I would set aside point five from Schreiner. And then his sixth point, um, it's kind of the framework we're using to analyze this stuff, is that God approached Adam first after the couple had sinned, even though Eve sinned first. Genesis 3.9 says, The Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? So they both sin, but Adam is called to account first. And now Philip Payne will offer pushback against this. And he says, Um, Yes, you might think that, you know, God's giving Adam more authority or more responsibility here because he's holding him to account for something that they both did. And you can add to this that he also ordered it to Adam, not to Eve, but to Adam. And then he holds Adam to account. Okay, so we're going to add these things up and they all start to be pretty powerful. But he says what's really happening here is this is what's called a chiastic structure. 
Now, I'm sorry after talking for so long to introduce the word chiasm to y'all, but a chiasm or chiastic structure is like when a story is like kind of a mirror version of itself, okay? So um, an example of this is the flood. In the flood story, they enter the ark, then the floodwaters rise. Then the floodwaters descend, and then they exit the ark. And you see how there's like a mirror going on here? It's part A, part B, and then part B, and then part A, right? Enter the ark, floodwaters rise. Now let's reverse it. Floodwaters lower, exit the ark. Okay, that, that's like a chiasm. But Philip Payne's chiasm of Genesis is a lot more complicated than that. So um, I'm starting to realize, okay, there it is. All right, some of the stuff I set up just didn't show up. Okay, you don't see me, but what you see here is a screenshot for Philip from Philip Payne's book where he offers a chiasm of what is going on. It's not just A, B, B, A or something. Rather, Philippines' chiasm of the story of Genesis is A, B, C, D, E, F, E, D, C, B, A, A, B, C, D, E. I'm just going to say that's not a chiasm. <laughs> um, so there's two problems with Philippines, and I've leave it on the screen for a bit for you guys to kind of like think about it. There's a, a, a few problems with this, two really. One of them is it doesn't really feel like a chiasm. This doesn't feel natural. It feels like he's forcing sort of a, a grid or a, a, a perspective of Genesis, of the fall, that Genesis 3, that's not really present. But more importantly, even if it is a chiasm, even if what I put on your screen is a legitimate chiasm, it doesn't mean anything. Because Philip Payne's point seems to be, because it's a chiasm, like it had to be written in a way that made it look like Adam had authority because we're just trying to keep the poetic structure. But surely God can create a chiasm and the author of Genesis create a chiasm that doesn't involve that. Right? Like you could do this a hundred different ways. So I, I just think this is a weird pushback. Um, now let's add more to this fact. So Schreiner's point, right? Um, Adam's the first, even though Eve sins first, right? Adam is held accountable first. Now let's add to this the fact that Adam is seen as primarily responsible for the fall in the New Testament as well. Again, I'll mention egalitarians generally ignore the New Testament while studying Genesis. Part of this is a belief in something called biblical theology, but I think it's, that's a discussion for another time, but it's, it's taken too far. We should consider that when God offers his own inspired understandings like to the authors of the New Testament to understand how the Old Testament, like what it's saying and what it means, you can't ignore this if you believe that the Bible is from God. So Romans 5.19, it says... Um, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The first one man here is Adam. The second is Jesus. Now, the New Testament's consistent. Adam bears the primary responsibility for the fall, even though Eve ate first. Now, if, if they were equal, I would think the one who did it first would maybe bear more responsibility or they would share it equally. But in the New Testament, as well as in the curse, Adam seems to have greater responsibility. That's consistent with him having a role of authority with his wife, with Eve. Adam represents us all. That's consistent with a greater degree of authority. Eve is mentioned in the New Testament as well, but not as representing all people like Adam does. Eve maybe represents all women or as someone to consider as an example in general, but not all humans the way Adam does. That's New Testament theology. So... Um, Back to Shriner's point number two and six. I want to show you the, the power of these bringing them together. In point two, Shriner says, like, God commanded Adam, not Eve. And then Adam had to relay that information to Eve. 
in point six, we see that Adam is also seen to bear more responsibility for the actions than both of them. Now I'm going to add an additional argument for myself on this that I don't remember Schreiner bringing up. And that is, not only does God command Adam first, not only does God hold Adam to account first, not only does Adam bear greater responsibility in the New Testament, but in Genesis 3, 16 through 19, the curses are very different. At, uh, Eve's curse relates to women. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. Adam's curse represents all of creation and all of mankind. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. And, and don't for a second think that only men worked the field like women hadn't, didn't do anything out there. Um, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The death penalty to all mankind comes more through Adam than Eve. So Adam's curse impacts all of creation, right? All of creation, whereas Eve's only impacts women. This implies, I think, reasonably, a greater scope of representation with Adam than with Eve. Now combine that with New Testament teaching about Adam's weight of responsibility for the fall. And I think we have a really strong case for greater responsibility in representation with Adam as opposed to Eve, which implies authority to speak for or stand for both of them and all of us that Eve doesn't seem to have. So that's pretty strong. So the fall now, notice I'm not saying the, now we haven't talked about the curse to the woman about he will rule over you. That We haven't talked about that yet. So let's, let's come back to that in a minute. But Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, the framing of the fall, not just because of the fall, but the whole framing of it all seems to presume a type of authority that Adam has in his relationship with Eve. Philip Payne, though, does help us by pointing out two bad arguments complementarians have. Um, here's one, that even... Uh, that Eve usurped Adam's authority by eating of the tree. And some people, they really lean on this. I've heard this before. Well, Eve, she she violated Adam's authority by eating of the tree. This proves that Adam had... No, no, stop. Stop. <laughs> we got to think biblically about, right? The text does not focus on Eve violating Adam's anything. Eve is challenged, did God not say? Eve then does it anyways. And God holds her accountable to him, not to Adam, for the thing that she did. And so there's nothing, there's no support, I think, for this view that Eve usurped Adam's authority by eating of the tree. It was God, right? Satan did not say, did Adam really say? <laughs> this is not, that's not the issue. Each person's responsibility to, is to God in their relationship with God. Another bad complementarian argument is that Adam's mistake was in letting his wife lead because the rebuke from God includes the phrase, because you listen to your wife. Let's look at that again in verse 17. Um, I've heard this before and I've heard this in my own ears from, from pastors. Right? Adam's mistake, not many. Okay. Like once or twice over the years, um, was that he listened to the voice of his wife. Husband, you must be the leader. You cannot like, like, and this leads into some like weird things, right? Like I can't imagine encouraging husbands to not listen to their wives. Like, I mean, yeah, there's everything in the world is wrong with that. Um, and yet it's something that some people actually say. So this is weird because it presumes that Eve's station as a female was the problem and not the content of her suggestion to eat of the fruit, right? She gave to her husband with her and he ate. 
the problem isn't Adam, you listened to uh, your wife and you shouldn't have listened to uh, your wife. You're supposed to be the leader here. The problem is that he listened to her suggesting he eat the fruit. That's the issue. You ate the fruit. Um, the text, the focus is clearly on that. So she listened to the serpent. She ate of the fruit. She didn't listen to God. Adam listened to his wife. He ate the fruit, didn't listen to God. Neither listens to God. You and me, men and women, we have to listen to God first and not others. No matter who you listen to, if God's like, yes, but I said this, oh, but I, I heard so-and-so said, and that's not going to matter when you stand before God, he's going to be like, you should have just listened to me. So now, uh, Genesis 3.16, let's get to the um, ultimate debated passage. Okay, Genesis 3.16, God says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That's ESV. Let me read you a couple other translations. New King James. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Right. New American Standard. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And you can get these different translations that all say relatively different things. Um, they're obviously trying to struggle with how to interpret these words. What exactly is the desire that Eve has? And what exactly is the husband ruling over her mean? Is that good? Is it bad? Is it, is it, is it mean? Is it nice? Is it proper? Is it wrong? So um, let's dig into this. This is the last area of debate, and then we'll be done with today's video. It's just going to take about 15 minutes or so probably to cover through it, maybe probably longer, actually. Um, okay, so he will rule over you and, it's, and the desire. Um, Linda Belleville is the one I'm going to focus on who offers a lot of extensive arguments on this topic, and she's an egalitarian scholar. And her view is that um, Eve's desire is for intimacy. The desire Eve has in the curse is for physical intimacy, like sexual intimacy with, with Adam, and that he's going to rule over either that desire or, or it's, or it's a different interpretation. I'll, I'll get into both her interpretations now. So he will rule over you. Linda Belleville, uh, Dr. Belleville offers a couple different interpretations. One, the husband will have sexual demands for the wife. And I quote her now from the two views book, chapter one, she says, a better fit with the context is that the man's rule takes the form of sexual demands. So she's like, hey guys, you've misunderstood the curse all along. It was never about authority. It was like, hey, the, the husband is going to be making sexual demands of the wife. Both sides of the curse here, the woman's desire and the husband's demands are about sexual desire. The woman wants intimacy and the husband's going to demand intimacy. And I know that might sound a little strange, but that's, that's her interpretation. This seems like a stretch for a number of reasons. Um, the woman is now going to want intimacy as part of a curse, but the man's desire for intimacy is going to rule over her desire for intimacy as part of a curse. It starts to feel like, what are we talking about anymore? In what way is this? How is this a perennial problem for women? Women are like, I really want to be with my husband, but he's demanding that I be with him. Like, or, or is it, I want to be with him intimately, but he doesn't want it. So he's, he's ruling over it. He's shutting it down. And my you know experience in life talking to people and hearing people, real people, is that it's usually the opposite in marriage. Um, not that way. So she has another interpretation though, and she'll say either one of these is workable. And her interpretation is that the translation shouldn't be that he will rule over you. It should be translated, it will rule over you. And so this totally changes the meaning of the verse. And like nobody translates it this way in your, in your main translations we use, but now it means something very different. It means that the husband is um, not the cause of any of the problems here, but rather a woman's going to intimately desire her husband 
And the woman has to be careful because that desire for her husband might mess her up. So don't have too many sexual desires for your own husband, I guess. It's, it just, this is what it feels like when we're, when we're, I think, forcing interpretations on a text that don't fit. You know, you ever tried on a pair of pants and they don't fit? That's how it feels like. Um, so this depends on reading the pronoun as a neuter, it instead of he. It's not he will rule over you, it's it will rule over rule over you. Now this is possible in Hebrew, like you can possibly do this, but that doesn't mean it's reasonable or the, the best way to translate. So don't get too excited because when it comes to translating, we want what's natural, not what's possible. We want what's likely, not what could be the case. So uh, Craig Blomberg responds, he says, um, he shall rule is a much more natural reading than it shall rule. And I'll just say, this is why nobody translates it that way. Like Linda Belleville is very much on her own. And if you're on your own, um, like I surveyed 31 translations, 31 translations of Genesis, none of them translate it in neuter. It's always he will rule, he will rule. The husband is the one who's, who's the subject, not the desire. 31 translations, not a single one of them says it. And I don't know of any significant number of scholars who agree with her either. So Linda Bevel's very much on the fringe here, I think, because she's presenting a, uh, something that's only possibly true, not likely, and that nobody else seemed to, seems to be supporting. So it feels very ad hoc or made up uh, for this, and it seems like it is. Um, also, I just don't know what the verse means anymore. If, if Linda Belleville's interpretation is right, that you're going to sexually desire your husband, and that sexual desire is going to rule over you, like, how is the woman's desire for intimacy with her husband a bad thing? Like, sexual desire in marriage is good. Like, that's a good thing. We consider that healthy and wonderful, right? It's, marriage bed is undefiled, Scripture says. Um, is there other teaching from Scripture that can support this idea that women have a desire for their husbands too much intimately? Like, I don't see anywhere in Scripture where this is like some perennial problem. Nor do I see practical examples that speak of a general issue with women desiring intimacy too much. I don't, I mean, I don't know of very many. It's not normal that this is the issue in marriage. But I do see New Testament teaching about a husband's authority. So we will get there later. So both of Linda Belleville's interpretations depend on this. Uh, interpreting the word desire and rule over these two different words in, in Genesis 3.16 to mean sexual or physical intimacy. This is the weak spot in her argument. And once we resolve this, we'll deal with, I think, what the verse is actually saying and how egalitarians respond to that. Um, but the word rule, he shall rule over you, that is the word mushal in the Hebrew. In Genesis 1.18, we have it for the sun and moon ruling over the day and night. In Genesis 4.17, it's Cain who has to rule over the sin that tempts him to harm and kill his brother. In Genesis 24.2, the same word is where Joseph's brothers don't like the prophetic dream that Joseph is going to rule over them. Like, what's interesting about all these examples? They're not about sex, right? These examples, the sun and moon are not intimately ruling. It's not sexually ruling over the world. Joseph's brothers aren't worried that he's going to sexually do something to them. They don't want him having authority over them. Genesis 45.8, it's used again where Joseph actually rules over Egypt second to Pharaoh. It's used again in Genesis 45.26. I surveyed through the Old Testament this word rule, mushal, to see if it's ever being used of intimacy, and it's really not. It's very consistently throughout the Old Testament being used to mean rule as an authority. So um, lexicons agree. The, when you look at the Greek, uh, the Hebrew lexicons, they all seem to agree. So I think that this is just a distraction. This whole thing's a distraction. Now, what about the word desire? Is it possible that the woman, her desire for her husband, 
in Genesis 3.16 is a sexual, intimate desire. Now, many do actually see it this way. This word desire could be translated that way. Um, this is chuka. That's the, I feel like I'm speaking Klingon because I don't do Hebrew good at all. But this is the word chuka. And um, uh, Brown Driver Briggs says it's, it's longing. And even in Brown Driver Briggs, a very well-respected lexicon, it says that in this passage, is talking about a woman longing for a man. Now that, that seems like it could imply something like that. The Dictionary of Biblical Languages says, um, this strong desire may refer to sexual urges or desires, or a desire to dominate, or just be independent of the man. Other references, other references may also be possible. I think that's a better way to look at it is, guys, it could go either way. It could go either way. Uh, many people see a woman's desire for her husband here to be intimate, sexual, and still conclude that his rule over her is his authority in her life. And um, I would say there are some arguments against that, though. Um, one is, I'll give you three. One is that desire is not bad. It was likely already present and considered good. The woman probably already desired her husband. Adam and Eve desired each other naturally. That was a good thing in Genesis 2. So as part of the fall, what's a bad desire is now she wants control. And then his thing's going to be bad too, in a way. We'll get there in a second. Um, so how would it be part of a curse if she's a sexually desiring her husband? That doesn't seem like part of the curse. And in Genesis 4.17, this seems to be the biggest refutation. Now the Hebrew is almost identical here. Cain... Um, Four seven, not four seventeen. Cain is going to kill his brother, and God warns him ahead of time. He says, "Hey, if you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire, sin's desire, is contrary to you, but you must rule over it." This is almost entirely identical in Hebrew. It's only some of the there, there, there's necessary changes because it's um, uh, that are unrelated to the, the important parts of the words. I'll put it that way. But the Hebrew is almost identical to one chapter earlier where God says, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Here, God says, same speaker, God says to Cain, sin's desire is contrary to you or for you, same word, but you must rule over it. Here, sin wants to control him and he needs to have rule or dominion over his actions and over that sinful desire. Um, this seems to me to seal the deal. Um, now, Linda Belleville has a different perspective, though. She says that gender intimacy, not authority or rule, is what links all three Old Testament uses of the Hebrew term for uh, the, the, the desire that's there. So the lion's desire, okay, um, how do I explain this? As my brain is fading, I didn't sleep enough last night, as, as happens every couple nights. But um, in Genesis 3.16, the question is, is that intimate desire? Well, there's two other places where it's used. In Song of Songs, 7.10, it is intimate desire. Okay, I am my beloved and his desire is for me. It seems to be about intimate, including intimate ideas. You could say it's a desire to rule her, but I, I mean, it just seems to me his desire is for her. This seems to be intimate. The problem is Song of Songs is very far away from Genesis chapter 3 and the relevant passage is the, one I, is the one I just read you where the word is used again. It's the only other time it's used in the Bible. And it seems to be talking about sin desiring to control the actions of Cain. It's a control issue. 
But Belleville does not interpret it that way. She interprets this passage that it's about intimacy because sin is like a lion because it's crouching. So it's like a lion that wants to eat Cain and eating is like intimacy. Do I have to explain why that's weird? <laughs> um, eating is not intimacy. Consuming someone is not intimacy. Um, and, and the thing that Cain does next is he kills his brother. He doesn't die. Sin doesn't kill him. Sin controls him. It kills his brother. So the whole context seems to talk about control. I think the NET has a good Bible note that responds to this. It's, it responds to Belleville's argument basically and says that it ignores the usage of the word in Genesis 4-7 where it refers to sin's desire to control and dominate Cain. Even in Song of Songs, they think it carries the basic meaning of control for it describes the young man's desire to have his way sexually with the young woman. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. Maybe they're right. In Genesis 3.16, the Lord announces a struggle, a conflict between man and woman. Sin, she will desire to control him, but he will dominate her instead. This interpretation also fits the tone of the passage, which is a judgment oracle. So yeah, um, conclusions. Here's my conclusions. Eve's desire seems to be related to ruling her husband. I want to fight for control now, but the husband is going to rule over her. The next question is, is that good? Like this does not seem healthy. Genesis 3, 16 does not seem like a healthy situation. Hey, propagate this everywhere, everybody. And that's actually what egalitarians primarily lean on. This is the, the number one thing egalitarians say after wrongly concluding that Genesis 2 has no authority difference between Adam and Eve, they will say that we shouldn't propagate what happened in the fall. So it's a post-fall thing. It's not good. It's not ideal. We don't want to observe it. Genesis 3.16 is just seen from, I'll give you a few quotes, but from egalitarians as a description of what things are like after the fall and not a prescription of God's intentions for male and female relationships in marriage or society. It's a negative thing to be minimized or overturned if possible. And I am very sensitive to this. There's a really good point they're making. They're like 70% right here. <laughs> and I want to, I want to lean on that because I think it's important for complementarians to understand. So here's examples of this con uh, content. So Linda Belleville says, quote, what the rest of scripture lifts up as normative is not Genesis 3.16, but 1.27 and 2.23 and 24, like that men and women are in the image of God. Craig Keener says, Eve's deception led to her subordination under man. This is presented as part of the curse and like other aspects of the curse, labor pains, toil in the fields, sin and death does not need to be praised and enforced by church rules. That's, I mean, this is a strong argument. Philip Payne says, because Satan has been cast down and the last Adam, Christ, has begun the new creation, life in Christ's kingdom should not perpetuate the curse of the fall. He will rule over you. Pretty much all egalitarians say this, that that propagating or pushing that a husband has authority over his wife or with his wife in some measure, even limited authority, which it better be limited, um, that, that it somehow is pushing the curse. Like we're, we're trying to throw the curse back onto people. Like if a woman can take a pain pill during, during labor, why can't we alleviate this, this situation of the husband's rule? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, all of these arguments have already failed. This is why I started with Genesis 2, because they all totally depend 100% on Genesis 2 not having anything to do with Adam's authority. But it seems clearly that it does, and so they all fail. So we can all see it's a curse. But if there's some pre-existing design of a, of, of, of a relational role of differing authority between man and woman in Adam and Eve's creation in Genesis 2, 
if that's there, then we can't interpret Genesis 3 as just a blanket thing to totally try to overturn. Perhaps, and here's my view, perhaps before the fall, there was no conflict. Symmetry, easy leadership and, and yielding with no tension or no problems in the relationship, no abuses and no rebellions. That was before the fall. But now the curse is that conflict will exist while God's verdict is that the man is going to be, whether whether this is you think is good or not, that man's going to end up being in that higher role of authority. Now, perhaps then our application of this is different. It means that as long as conflict exists, it's the man that has the role of the leader and we sh- and we should you should yield to your husband in this case. I'm not applying it beyond marriage, by the way, yet. Um, so the solution then, if we want to alleviate the curse, is to alleviate the abuses and the harm and the stress and the and the misuse. It's not to alleviate the nature of authority in the home. So if a woman submitting to her husband started in Genesis 2, then it's not perpetuating the curse just because it's connected to the curse in Genesis 3. Does God perpetuate the fall if he tells in the New Testament women to submit to their husbands? Like, I don't know... Um, I mean, where you're at, if you're egalitarian, some of you will accept the New Testament does say that uh, men are leaders in the home. Many of you egalitarians, you'll reject this. And this is becoming more of the popular view, right? We reject that entirely. And like, are you saying that if God does say that, he's perpetuating the curse of the fall? Like we're going to get there in parts six through nine in the series. This all seems very clumsy to me. I think it's just more complicated. I think the, the egalitarians take a too simplistic view because they ignore Genesis 2 and its indications of Adam's role. So... If we take the egalitarian logic and apply it to the curse, to Adam, we can see the mistake. Okay, Adam is told that farming will now be more difficult due to thorns and thistles. But we shouldn't think that farming is bad. We just should alleviate the curse, which is the thorns and the thistles. We should try to work towards overcoming those obstacles. In Genesis 3.16, submission will be more difficult because it will involve conflict now. But that doesn't mean that submission was bad or that authority was bad. The battle for submission and leadership in the home will make things more difficult now. But that doesn't mean that the core idea is only a result of the fall. The whole curse theme in Genesis 3 fits this idea. Now let's back up and look at the whole curse and see how it's really consistent. Farming is good and now it'll be harder. Childbirth is good and now it will be more painful. Marriage roles are good, but now they will be much harder and will include conflict. The language egalitarians use of reversing the curse could better be accomplished through Ephesians 5, where the solution is that husbands self-sacrificially love their wives as themselves and they never force submission. And the woman voluntarily shows respect and submission, but as unto the Lord. So it's not um, like what what color shoelaces you can wear and stuff like this, like that kind of abusive kind of behaviors. So self-sacrificial love and voluntary submission. That's the Ephesians 5 ideal that we're getting. That is how we deal with the curse, I think. Um, now, let me add a couple things before we end. This is about husbands and wives, not men and women. You know, even the curse. Your desire will be for your husband, God tells her. Your husband. I do not think every man, by Genesis, every man has authority over every woman. I think that that is not the case. It's a relationship between husband and wife. And there are some egalitarians who think it's about men and women in general. I don't think it is. I think it's about husbands and wives. Adam and Eve are the prototype husband-wife. The whole theme in Genesis 2 is husbands and wives. The the whole discussion, the language, leaving father and mother, being joined to your wife, um, the two becoming one, it's in that context. So know your place language that women often hear from complementarians or patriarchalists is 
usually it presupposes that universal submission of women to men in general is the idea. And I haven't promoted any of that yet. I don't think Genesis has. Um, let's put all this together then and see how Genesis 1 through 3 relates. Here's my summary of everything I've done in my exhausting video. Genesis 1. Men and women are both in God's image. Wow. Women are not lesser inherent image bearers of God. They, they have equal value, immeasurable value, crownings of creation, men and women both. Women as well as men also have dominion over the earth. Women aren't just sidekicks and their ability to have dominion over the earth should not be limited in the, in the name of having uh, a leadership, you know, be for their husband. We shouldn't limit that. Um, Genesis 2, they are, men and women, by God's creation, they are in different roles, which involve a husband in particular, not just a man, having some degree of authority or leadership in relation to his wife. This worked harmoniously in Genesis 2. No problems. Part of perfection included different husband and wife roles in relation to each other, not so much in relation to creation, just each other. Eve has dominion in relation to creation, but in relation to Adam, Adam has that leadership role. In Genesis 3, due to the fall, these roles are going to be way harder. And now abuse and rape and neglect and wife beating and all these other things are connected to this. Genesis 3.16 is not the ideal. You, you want to control him and he rules over you. That is not the ideal to be propagated. But even though we're going to fight against that, we're not fighting, we're not fighting against Genesis 2, the ideal. So there'll be painful conflict. We live in a fallen world with ideals that rarely are expressed without the taint of sin, hence the horrible stories of abuse that we hear. If you want to reverse the fall, reverse the pain and not the nature of the relationship. Don't come against farming, come against thorns and thistles. Don't come against different roles, come against the abuse of those roles, either in rebellion or in domineering authoritative behaviors. Selfless, loving, non-forceful, nurturing leadership from the husband and voluntary loving submission from the wife, both acting in love and service to God. And um, this is super important because I disagree with a lot of complementarians on this next issue, which is husbands and wives is my focus here, not men and women. Um, yes, Adam represents all humans and Eve represents all women, but their relationship, which is the issue, represents marriage. And so that's where I'm limiting this, this analysis. Um, <clears throat> And I'm going to disagree with a lot of complementarians on that topic. So we will get there, though. Next up is this. We're going to do a survey in the next video in this series on women in leadership positions in the Old Testament and not in one particular leadership position that they're not in. We're going to deal with that. Um, this is a lot of correction next time for complementarians and some overreach from egalitarians. But women in the Old Testament do more than you probably think they do. And they have higher roles of authority than many of us are probably aware. So we're going to talk about those issues and we'll deal with it in detail next week as I continue the women in ministry series. Thank you guys for joining me. I knew this is going to be a crazy long video. I just really wanted to get all the Genesis stuff in one video. So it was all locally connected and you could find it easily. For those of you who stuck with me, I'm proud of you. <laughs> all right. So I'll see you guys um, Friday for the Q&A. And I, I hope to have the next video up on Monday for this series. Um, it depends on if I can get it ready in time. I have a lot of stuff I have to work through. So I appreciate your prayers as I work through this thing and hope that it's bringing more light than heat.